John 12, 12 through 19, part 2, with an explanatory excursus at the beginning. And the reason is, is it was pointed out to me that I kind of, kind of talked about the Passover a little, but more so centered on what the Passover led to, namely the going out of Egyptian bondage, the exodus through the Red Sea, out into the wilderness and then into the promised land. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to Exodus chapter uh, 12, the Passover, Passover is actually instituted. Here's ancient Israel in Egypt, plagues, uh, forms of judgment come from the Lord upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians for the purpose of the salvation of his people. So these miracles, in one sense, are for the purpose of salvation, just like ultimately the miracles of our Lord are for the purpose of salvation. But the Passover was instituted by the Lord through Moses and Aaron. Uh, if you notice, speak uh, verse 3 of chapter 12, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. Now, this is interesting. A lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household hold is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may, make it, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall not, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, uh, and it goes on and on and on. Now the, uh, verse 13, Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The plague is going to be on others. He's going to strike others in judgment. All the while, salvation is going to come to the people who put the blood on, on, the, door, on the door of their places. Very interesting institution of uh, this, actually the the, pass, the salvation for the Jews at the time. Uh, judgment would come upon anybody who didn't do this. The rest of the people that did it were actually all the Jews that God's going to save. Now, this Passover was the first of subsequent Passovers. Passover as an annual institution gets incorporated into the mosaic legislation after the exodus out of Egypt, the wilderness wanderings, 
Okay, so you have the shedding of the blood of lambs by virtue of which the people are saved or spared. Then you have the people going through waters, waters of salvation for them, judgment for the Egyptians. After they get out, they go out into the wilderness and they're tempted and they fail. After the, tempt, after the wilderness wanderings of 40 years and that generation dies off, a new generation is taken, not by Moses, because he was a failure too, but by Joshua, Yeshua, Jehovah saves, Jesus, um, across through some water again into the promised land. Very interesting, all that. So when we came to John 12, that was the instant, that was the Passover instituted and the historical context there. They were to slaughter a lamb, get its blood, Put it on the door, like this, Sean said. Yeah, that's right, in the sign of a cross. Uh, and that would be a sign for them, uh, for the angel of the judging angel of the Lord, not to uh, judge that home with death in the firstborn and then preserve those ones, take them through the, the Red Sea and out uh, into um, the wilderness, but away from... Uh, the clutches of Satan. I mean Pharaoh. So it's very important and strategic that John tells us it was that particular festival, remembering that particular historical act of God and his people that benefited his people, it is that one in which, or during which, John 12 occurs. No small matter that um, the Lord Jesus was there at, at this festival that reminded people that God had his people slaughter lambs, put blood on a door, was a sign of their salvation, and then saved them. So do you think that ancient Israel is somehow, some way, a pattern for Jesus to follow in, but obey God instead of disobey God like ancient Israel did. There's a technical word for that. Does anybody want to know it, want to know it besides Jess? I pick on you at conferences now. Um, we... I'm the pastor. Recapitulation. Some of you, he's not his head. I heard that before. I've seen that before. I read that before. Recapitulation. Re again. Capitulate, head up, or do something again. Okay? So Israel, corporate Adam. I've used that language before. Israel um, was to shed blood of a lamb and then be brought by God's power through judgment for some, which is salvation for others, death and resurrection. Do you see the death and the resurrection? Death and resurrection at the Exodus? You should see it. 
There's death and resurrection going on. There's people getting saved by virtue of judging waters come upon others, and we could say very near themselves. The Lord Jesus, after he was baptized, was driven where? Out into the wilderness. Is anybody else, after they went through waters, driven out into the wilderness? Yes, what happened out there? A whole generation was judged by God for not believing his promises. What happens to the Lord? Individual Israel recapitulating corporate Israel, but doing what they never did, obeying. What happens to him out in the... He was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness and tempted 40 days by Pharaoh. I mean, the devil. How did Pharaoh get out of that? I thought Pharaoh got wasted in the waters. Um, The devil gets knocked down, but not knocked out until the end. So he, the Son of God, is tempted by the devil... 40 days out in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, and he didn't eat or drink. Matter of fact, if you remember Luke chapter 3, there's the long genealogy, and it ends with the son of Adam, the son of God. Then chapter 4, the son of God is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights. And Jesus was out there, and the devil was there, and here was the devil lying about the promises of Scripture, and Jesus would have nothing of it. Does that sound like not just corporate Israel out in the wilderness, but the son of Adam? Doesn't that sound like Adam in the garden? It does, doesn't it? So you have God's people in God's place under God's rule being tempted by the devil and they failed. And then you have God's people in God's place under God's rule. And before they got there being saved from the bondage of Egypt, they failed out in the wilderness. And now we have Jesus not in the garden, but in the wilderness being tempted by the devil as the last Adam, and he cites Scripture back at him. Remember, I've said this before. Therefore, if you don't memorize Scripture, I'm going to beat you down because you're a lousy Christian. Jesus memorized Scripture. He threw him at the devil, and he won. That's why Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4 are in the Bible, to teach you that if you don't memorize Scripture, the devil's going to whoop your little behind. Well, that's one way you can look at it. And it's not all wrong. Should we memorize scripture? Yes. Is Jesus our example? Yes. Is scripture memory and Jesus as a moral example the only reason those verses are in the Bible? No. The primary reason those verses are in the Bible. No, what's the primary reason? The primary reason is that Jesus is not merely our example, but our hero. Thank you. You've been here a while, haven't you? But our hero, this is, this is the last Adam, recapitulating the garden, recapitul- which ended in failure, recapitulating ancient Israel, which ended in failure, and doing things right on behalf of those that he came to represent. Beating the devil, uh, we could say, on his own turf in one sense, 
and pulling the rug out from under the enemy of God's people. Anyway, the, the feast they were there for um, of Passover is very rich with symbolism and many other things, but we can't get there. So that's my correction from this morning's mishap. Um, although we don't want to disconnect Passover and all its symbolism with, with Exodus. Remember that weird text in Luke? I have an Exodus I must endure. Now, another translations translate it that way, but the Greek word in Luke, I'll find it later for you, or you can look it up. The Greek word is exodos or something like that. I have a going out from to, uh, to, to, to endure, which means Jesus was connecting his, I'll say it, death, burial, resurrection with the ancient exodus while on his, in his earthly ministry. So anyway, we looked at the passage, grumbling Pharisees was the last point we looked at, the witness of the witnesses of the resurrection of Lazarus, they're in there as well, John's commentary on Jesus' response, we didn't understand what was going on, but after he was entered glory, we got it, our Lord's response to the scene, he found a young donkey and sat on it, full of symbolism there, and all that, uh, all that actually started with... Um, with the crowd and what the crowd did uh, forming the scene is um, is the, the, the palm leaves the symbolism of there's a king coming rolling out the red carpet somebody told me that would be more familiar to us we're going to roll out the red carpet why? royalty's coming uh, that's what was happening. But they got the timing all mixed up. There's all sorts of things going on in our passage. But to drill down and to comp- contemplate four things briefly, here they are. During the earthly ministry of our Lord, some people did and said good and right things in relation to our Lord without understanding the depth of the symbolism of their actions or the full meaning of their words. They watched and they heard our Lord. Those are good things to do. They said things about our Lord. Some people did. That's good as well. Well, as long as you don't say blasphemous things. They said some right things about our Lord. Psalm 118, remember? These people saw him coming and they're saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're saying good and right things. They're actually saying scriptural things about Jesus. Jesus never refutes him. Oh, Psalm 118 has nothing to do with me. In matter of fact, he endows his apostles with the ability to realize elsewhere in the New Testament that, yeah, Psalm 118 does refer to Christ in his incarnate state and his glory at one point as well. The crowd cites one Psalm 118, and that was a good instinct that they had, but it was a good instinct mixed with faulty interpretation, faulty understanding. Do you ever have a good instinct mixed with something that's not good? I never have. I only have good instincts. I don't know about you, but we all have that. And these people uh, saw the incarnate Son of God, okay, uh, which we, we, we need to be careful with them because 
Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. Remember when Jesus told Peter that? People in our day that think, whoa, if I was around the first century and I saw the incarnate Son of God, I'd fall down on my face and say, my Lord, my God. No, people saw it all the time. And they, they killed the Lord of glory. It takes a revelation, illumination of the soul, the mind, to come to the conclusion, oh, there's a two-natured mediator called Jesus in the Bible. Now, that's not the first thing we say when we come to that conclusion, because <clears throat> as new believers, we don't speak that language. But in order to speak that language and believe what that language is pointing to, takes a work of God in our souls. So here are these people, from what we could tell, didn't have that work, illuminating work of God in their soul. But they're still reaching back to the Old Testament and connecting some of the dots uh, rightly. Now we know, um, since it does take a divine illumination and it takes uh, other interpretive tools like the resurrection and ascension and current session of Christ, realize how spoiled we are in one sense. We live on this side of the, the greatest event the uh, epoch eclipsing event, the greatest event in the history of the world was when the, the clouds were cut open and the Son of God assumes human nature and lives an abject life of poverty and shame for us and for our salvation and suffers and teaching, pouring his soul out into the disciples' upper room, last few chapters that we're going to go through, glorious things were given to them. By the time he dies, they're like, where are they? They're gone. And then the women find the empty tomb and start telling the disciples. And then they come back, and then he appears on the first day of the week, and instructs them further, and he tells them, wait, when I ascend, then this special endowment will come. Now, they lived through all that and had to agonize some. I mean, how much do you think Peter thought of himself as a dummy after Pentecost? Because when Peter preaches in Acts 2, it's not Peter, Matthew 18. It's not Peter, John, John 20. It's not Peter doubting the words of Jesus or trying to correct the Lord. Peter tried to correct the Lord, you know, during his earthly ministry. Could you see Peter doing that this side of the ascension? No. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches with boldness, he is using Old Testament texts to help the people realize what we saw is that which they said was going to happen. And he actually uses Yahweh texts from the Old Testament and he applies them to Jesus. You realize something else here about this. People said right things, did right things around him, connected some of the dots with the Old Testament to Jesus, but could have been lost while still doing all those things. Jesus didn't go around the ancient world going, ha, you messed that one up, didn't you? You connected five of the dots, but there's six. You need to repent. 
If Jesus did that, the Gospels would be full of Jesus never sleeping, having people line up so he can rebuke them of all their sins. You realize how many people Jesus passed by and never addressed them in their sins? And he knew them. He knew the sins. He was on a mission, wasn't he? There's going to come a day when, I don't know if the line is formed or whatever, but he will point out your sins. Unless you have pointed out your sins to him and he's taken the guilt of them from you. Second contemplation is during the earthly ministry of our Lord, the disciples did not understand all that was true of our Lord while watching others act toward him, watching him act and hearing him speak. We kind of went through that earlier. It's fascinating um, that that was the case. And third, we learn here that Pharisees are, are going to Pharisee. I've said this before. And that's what they did in this passage. They are worried that their platform will decrease. They are worried they will lose followers. They were the religious elite of the day with the most power over the people. They felt threatened. And all of this will turn out the worse for them. Though they think they win in the short run, in the long run, they get obliterated. They killed the Lord of glory. And yet God raises him from the dead. And then fourth, we learn here that our Lord is indeed spoken about in Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9. He doesn't correct the crowd of their connecting Psalm 118 with the events that are transpiring there. The assumption is that they were right. The rest of the New Testament confirms that they were right. He does this uh, uh, action of finding a colt and sitting on it, which is a visible picture of what Zechariah 9 says concerning the servant of the Lord in the future. He is that to which the promises of the Old Testament terminate, point to, find their fulfillment in. Why? For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us, Paul said. Why is it that people in the first century, they didn't always get it right, but they got good instincts. Our Bible, Old Testament, tells us something great is going to happen. Why is it that sometimes they're actually right? Because all the promises of God in terms of Christ are yea and amen in Christ. And Jesus is that Christ to whom all those promises pointed. Which, is, which means... This is a God thing. God makes promises. God brings the fulfillment of the promise. And the fulfillment of the promise, Jesus tells us he's that. We kill him. God blesses him, raises him from the dead. And then the people, well, some of the people that hated him, uh, end up advocating for him afterwards and give their lives for it. You know, the apostles. So these are uh, some contemplations. I hope that they're helpful. They're very scattered, at least in my head, but there it is. My service to you today, I ministered the word to you. Now it is time for the sacrament. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word and pray your blessings on it. And the supper now and the singing of your praises, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.